Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 100th and 11th edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises, a digital forensic cybersecurity and information technology firm in Fairfax, Virginia. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is the intersection of ethics and artificial intelligence. Before we get started, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Thanks to our sponsor, Logical, instant discovery software for modern legal teams. Logical offers perfectly predictable pricing at just $250 per matter per month. Create your free account at any time at Logical.com. That's Logic with a K, C-U-L-L dot com forward slash L-T-N. Today, our guest is Michael Mills, the co-founder and chief strategy officer at Neotologic. Before that, he was the innovation and technology leader at Davis Polk and a partner at Mayor Brown. Mr. Mills writes and speaks often on artificial intelligence and other technologies and strategies to improve the delivery of legal services. He's a director of Pro Bono Net and president-elect of the College of Law Practice Management. It's great to have you with us today, Michael. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you, John. I'm delighted to join you for this conversation. Well, Michael, why don't we begin with you telling us a little bit about your company, Neotologic, and how it uses artificial intelligence. Sure. Neotologic is one of the pioneers in AI and the law. Uh, my partners and I, all of whom are lawyers, thought that the technologies of AI could help improve the practice of law, both for private practice and in the public domain. We build a platform, a no-code development platform that allows people to build applications that use AI, both traditional symbolic or logical AI, rules-based AI, and machine learning by incorporation of other tools. We are working mostly with law firms and corporate legal departments, although there's nothing legal specific about our software. So, Michael, tell our listeners a little bit about how AI, as, as you see, is being used overall in the practice of law today. It's come a long way. When I first got into this field, I think you could say that uh, AI, particularly the most advanced and current forms of AI, was being used almost exclusively in electronic discovery. But since then, it has spread to a number of areas, and I, I think I've gotten up to seven of them now. In electronic discovery, uh, of course, machine learning and uh, technology-assisted review have been around for quite some time and are a well-proven technology. Uh, we'll get to some of the implications of that when we talk about the ABA rules. Legal research in the early days of the, the decade uh, wasn't terribly visible in the AI world, and yet we all knew that the big companies like Thomson Reuters and Bloomberg and Lexis and Nexus were investing heavily in AI research. And startup companies came along to bring the most advanced techniques into legal research. So there's a great deal of uh, AI work in legal research that users don't see as AI. They see it simply as better, faster, more pointed, more useful search results. There's a lot of work being done in predictive analytics, in taking data about 
court processes and outcomes of prior cases and trying to predict for future cases uh, based on those past cases. And then there's similar work in predictive analytics that's being done in uh, the operation of the legal system in predicting pricing in matters, predicting budgets, and so on. And indeed, there's some predictive work being done in government processes. Do you remember the day, Michael, when you had all of the companies who worked in AI on a, on a single screen? I do. Uh, and that, that map, uh, which was pretty simple, uh, has grown now to look a bit like uh, the New York City subway system. There are, uh, new br- <laughs> there are new branches and uh, there are many, many companies in the space. And there's been uh, lots of investment in advanced technologies and particularly AI in, in the profession over the last decade, not only by the big players whom I mentioned who were kind of invisible for a number of years and then burst forth with products like West Analytics and, and others, uh, FastCase, for example, CaseText, many of them suddenly appeared. But there are now people doing uh, highly speculative work in AI and the law. A company in Toronto, for example, called Blue Jay Legal is predicting case outcomes based on analysis of, of prior cases. I think in addition to the predictive analytics, there's a tremendous amount of attention being given to the analysis of contracts. In a way, you can think of it as applying the techniques of electronic discovery to the review, not of correspondence and other documents that are relevant to a litigation, but of contracts. If you have a portfolio of real estate leases and you want to understand what's in them, you're doing a due diligence exercise, you want to know where the risks are, you can use techniques that are under the hood, very similar to the techniques of e-discovery, to do that work of reviewing documents uh, effectively in in the corporate space with uh, tremendous efficiency gains. Lots of investment, lots of new players, lots of now, I think, well-proven approaches to doing that. Natural language generation, uh, a technology that is kind of at the leading edge of AI, has quite recently come to be used in uh, the legal profession. There are some folks who are doing interesting work Uh, actually drafting answers to complaints based on the complaints in specific areas of the law. And there will be more of that over time. And then finally, the area where my own company operates, uh, Neotologic, and uh, we were with Oracle, I think the only two people in the space at the beginning of the decade, and now there are uh, six or eight or more folks, uh, a category that we call expertise automation, which is to help people work their way through relatively routine legal problems and processes in an efficient way. Uh, And finally, quite recently, some of the core suppliers of document management technology to the legal profession have begun to embed AI into their tools in the same way that the legal research folks have embedded AI tools to make their research products better. You can see the document management vendors beginning to improve their products, particularly search capabilities in those products with AI techniques. Well, let's talk about the American Bar Association and its Resolution 112 involving AI and ethics, uh, which was passed on August the 12th, 2019. It's short, so why don't you read it aloud, Michael, and then tell us why you think the ABA felt the need to address this issue. Sure. Uh, 
in the formal language of the ABA, we're going to start by saying resolved. <laughs> um, and this is the, the method the, uh, the individual sections use to present things to the uh, formal ABA for decision. So resolved that the American Bar Association urges courts and lawyers to address the emerging ethical and legal issues related to the use of artificial intelligence in the practice of law, including one, bias, explainability, and transparency of automated decisions made by AI, two, ethical and beneficial usage of AI, and three, controls and oversight of AI and the vendors that provide AI. That is in the usual kind of constitutional language of bar association resolutions, quite general, but it does set a framework and set a priority that is new to the formal bar in addressing these issues. And in that respect is a tremendous step forward because these tools are being used quite broadly across the profession. They're being introduced sometimes when we don't know it, background of a legal research system, and they are being introduced in a very explicit and intentional way when you pick up a tool to do something in contracts as you can do in electronic discovery. So for the Bar Association to recognize that this new technology is an important step forward, one can, in a sense, say this is already covered by the, uh, the requirements of the disciplinary rule that say that lawyers must be familiar with uh, current technology. But this is a su sufficiently distinctive and important and rapidly advancing technology that a resolution dedicated solely to that topic seems very valuable. Yeah, I, th I thought the same thing, and I was glad to see that uh, that they're undertaking that. And I've actually had the honor of being appointed to the working group on this subject, so it's been very interesting, and it's very animated. <laughs> I think that working group is important because it's fine to adopt the resolution and urge the profession to pay attention to AI, but there is rapid change in the field, and uh, there's lots to learn, lots to think about, many issues to cover. So the commitment of the bar to the working group and to the continued study of the, of the technology and its role is, I think, even more important in a way than the resolution itself. Well, Michael, as you as you said and pointed out, that the resolution itself is kind of short in general. But but there was a a report that accompanied the resolution. Can you talk a little bit about what you think some of the most important points in that report uh, were? Yeah, the report is is a thoughtful fifteen page overview of the set of problems that should be considered. I think there is in the all of the discussion in that ABA report and and in the the profession generally, some difficulty in distinguishing between the issues of AI and ethics that affect the society as a whole and those that are particular to the law. You can see that in, uh, in, in the works of two members of the Susskind family. Richard Susskind's most recent book, Online Courts, talks a good deal in the sections on online judging about the impact of AI. Uh, his son Daniel has just published a book, A World Without Work, which is deals with the larger social questions that AI presents. And those are occasionally talked about in the law. There, a few years ago, as AI first began to be 
visible in, in the legal profession. There were lots of kind of silly articles about robot lawyers and jobs disappearing and will there be any associates in the future and so on. Uh, those are at the societal level, large and significant questions. And, and Daniel Susskind's book is one of the, uh, certainly the newest and one of the first rate books on that topic. But I think for the ABA, we need to focus on the narrow issues of how this uh, affects the profession. And I think within that, we need to look at three different uh, sets of people who interact with AI. First, you have government actors. You have uh, courts, parole officers, sentencing judges, agencies issuing benefits, all kinds of governmental actors who are increasingly using AI tools. And there is a set of uh, ethical and legal issues about those uses of AI. There's a set of uses for practitioners in the law, lawyers who are representing people, both in corporate contexts and in individual client contexts. And finally, there's a set of issues about uh, end users. We could call them clients or citizens or members of the public who are interacting with AI-based systems. Uh, and each of those presents a, a, a different set of issues. And I think the ABA report accompanying the resolution uh, highlights each of those in useful ways. I think the, the great value of that report uh, is that it sets the boundaries, or not the boundaries, I should say, but sets a, uh, a framework, a beginning agenda for the working group over time. That agenda is going to evolve uh, as the, the technology moves along and as understanding of the many intersections with the profession move along. Uh, but I, I think its principal value is in setting that framework for discussion. There are, I think, perhaps this is uh, a point we will, we will get to, um, is the particular ethical rules of the profession that are impacted by or intersect with AI. Well, let's talk about the ethical rules, which are cited most often in connection uh, with AI. And these include confidentiality, competence, communication, and supervision of other lawyers and non-lawyers. So want to take a stab at telling us why those are so relevant to AI? Sure. I, let, let's just take them in, in that order. Um, confidentiality is, of course, always an issue with uh, our, our profession. We have uh, an obligation greater than most businesses. I guess healthcare is heavily regulated by HIPAA, but our profession values confidentiality for a whole variety of historical and very, very good reasons. And indeed, it, you can see in our profession's uh, adoption of other technologies our extra sensitivity to the issues of privacy. I think it's apocryphal, but because I've never been able to find a, a citation that's good, but it is a good story that when telephones were first available commercially in the city of Philadelphia, uh, the local lawyers raised a question about whether it was appropriate for lawyers to use the telephone to communicate with clients or with each other on the ground that uh, those communications might not be confidential, that after all those in the early days were operator-assisted phone calls and that operators listening in might vitiate the privilege. Uh, so the profession was, at least the story goes, quite resistant to using telephones. 
in my in the era that I uh, grew up in, uh, the arrival of electronic mail in the profession, I think, was dealt with in the same way. There were early, somewhat ill-informed opinions by some state bars that uh, there were significant ethical risks for lawyers in using email. There was certainly reluctance to do that. Uh, one concern was confidentiality, that these messages were going out into some place, the ether, who knew where that was, uh, passing through servers and computers that the lawyers didn't control and might raise a concern about breaching the privilege. And I'm not talking about the infamous reply all that goes to everybody <laughs> or mistaken addresses. But the profession did respond to that uh, in, a, in a serious way. And I, I think it's illustrative of the extra attention that the profession needs to give to confidentiality in AI. Once the profession decided that it was all right to use email, then you found every law firm in the world putting a long disclaimer at the footer of its email saying, this thing is privileged, and if you receive it uh, and you shouldn't have, you should return it and you shouldn't read it and so on. Whether those have either operational or legal significance is uncertain, but it does reflect the profession's concern and legitimate and rightful concern about confidentiality. And then in uh, many law firms that I know of, once they discovered that lawyers didn't always understand the difference between reply and reply all, many law firms modified their email systems to make it harder to reply all. And many law firms put in little uh, attachments to their legal, to their email systems that would, when a lawyer was writing to someone outside the firm and attaching a document, pop up another dialogue saying, do you realize you were writing to so-and-so who is not in this law firm and you were sending this document? Is that what you really want to do? And yes, I do. That extra confidentiality attention is, I think, what needs to be brought into the world of AI. Because most AI systems, not all, but most, operate in the cloud. Uh, that's where the computing horsepower is readily available, cost-effectively available to do interesting things. And if lawyers are not attentive, as they were in the case of email, to confidentiality, they may get, in, get into trouble. The, the second of the uh, ethical requirements, competence, is in my view the most important and the most difficult. If we are going to use very complex advanced tools to serve our clients or to serve the cause of justice, we need to understand those. And we don't need to understand them at the level engineers do. We don't need to be able to build any of these tools. but as a senior lawyer taught me when I was a very young lawyer, I need to be able to cross-examine an engineer at a level that elicits what that engineer knows and doesn't know and what he can defend and not defend. That seems to me a pretty good way of describing the level of competence that lawyers need to have about these technologies. You need to be able to ask intelligent questions, evaluate the answers, press for answers when they're fuzzy, and then be able to make a judgment about whether a particular technology or a particular vendor is suitable. Communication, always important. Indeed, if you look at disciplinary complaints to bar regulators across the country, the lack of communication is the single most common ethical complaint source of disciplinary proceedings. You need to talk to your clients about what you're doing. 
we have progressed to the point that you don't need to get your client's consent to use email, but you do need to get your client's consent to use an AI-based system. And then finally, supervision. I think that's really a version of competence. Uh, you, you can be competent in making the evaluation, but then you then need to pay attention as the system is actually, actually being used. And that too is seen in disciplinary complaints. Uh, failure to, to uh, be diligent is, again, one of the most common disciplinary complaints. And that often, in the case of AI, means you turn it on and you don't pay attention. We need to do that. Well, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick commercial break. Ten years ago, eDiscovery meant lawyers packed into a basement, fumbling with complex, slow software, wondering where their lives had gone wrong. Today, not much has changed. That's why Logical is putting an end to eDiscovery. Logical is simple, powerful, instant discovery software designed to make you hate document review less. Create a free account today by yourself with no human interaction at logical.com forward slash LTN. That's logic with a K, C U L L dot com forward slash LTN. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our topic is the intersection of ethics and artificial intelligence. Our guest is Michael Mills, the co-founder and chief strategy officer of Neota Logic. Well, one of the huge ethical issues that we're faced with is, is bias and transparency, which really involves model rule uh, 8.4G that says it is professional misconduct to engage in conduct that a lawyer knows or reasonably should know is harassment or discrimination on the basis of race, sex, religion, national origin, ethnicity, disability, age, sexual orientation, gender identity, marital status, or socioeconomic status in conduct related to the practice of law. And I'm sure you're familiar, Michael, with one of the most famous examples involves a piece of software called Compass, which is, is used by quite a few courts, actually, in predicting the sentencing, right, the li- likelihood of recidivism in, in criminal defendants. Um, and there have been several reports that essentially said that, you know, this is black box stuff and it really doesn't work. We don't know what's going on and, and, and they don't get it right the majority of the time. So can you comment a little bit on that? Yes, I, I think this is an example of uh, the use of AI by government actors where it is particularly important because that's being imposed on the world around us, those who are the uh, subjects of, of that government. My own view, maybe a somewhat idiosyncratic one, is that for these kinds of tools that are being used by uh, government agencies, government actors to make decisions that have significant impact on us as citizens and uh, other residents of of this jurisdiction, those tools need to be open source. And I'll use an analogy to uh, the Compass software, it is voting software. Uh, Voting software is mostly proprietary, and that means that none of us is in a position to evaluate whether voting software and election security is in fact adequate. I think that great service that ProPublica did in its very detailed analysis of Compass was to demonstrate that without transparency, these systems are dangerous. And uh, that's perhaps an extreme view, but it is mine. And I think the profession, uh, as not users of these systems, but as upholders of the values of law, the larger values of law, 
has an obligation to address these things, even if the profession is not itself using these or engaged in using them. Well, I, I know John and I couldn't agree more. Uh, we we do not like black box AI. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to the uh, independent high-level expert group on artificial intelligence, which the European Commission set up. Um, it published ethics guidelines for trustworthy AI. What do you think of their guidelines? Tell us a little bit about them. I think they're a very valuable step. There is work going on at the European Commission, which is the one you just referred to, uh, at the OECD, at Uh, an organization in California. There are uh, high-level ethics considerations and discussions and examinations going on uh, across the industry. There's a company called OpenAI, which was founded by some people in the industry, in part uh, with an idea that these things should be not only discussed, but implemented in, in open ways. The European Commission guidelines and the report that accompanies them, I think, are very, uh, very well done. As is always true with the commission, they start uh, at the fundamental level. What are the rights uh, and the human rights we're trying to to protect here? The most useful to me part of that report is in section three, the early draft, they call it a pilot version, checklist for trustworthy AI, the assessment list, which uh, proposes 20 or 30 questions that one wants to uh, have a look at when evaluating a system. Some of them are at a very high level, a level of social justice in a sense. And it's unlikely that a practicing lawyer making a decision about which contract analysis tool is going to need uh, to answer some of those uh, social justice questions. But it is still a very valuable uh, checklist for looking at a particular system. Michael, you know, I, I, I'm a little uh, skeptical because a lot of, you know, a lot of the, the, the folks out there they love to use the term AI because it sounds sexy and it's really you know marketing kind of a thing. But do you really think that ethical AI is 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 even possible? Uh, well, I suppose you could start with a fundamental question: Is ethical behavior possible? Uh, <laughs> uh, let's let's make the the optimistic assumption that it is. I I think ethical AI is possible if you recognize the limitations, because AI in this context is largely defined as doing things that humans would otherwise do, then we need to be realistic about how we can evaluate and measure uh, what the the systems do. But that's also true of of human processes. Uh, There's a computer scientist who early on in the discussions about AI said, yeah, look, I'm interested in AI, but what I'm really concerned about is natural stupidity. Yeah, humans make lots of mistakes. And just because I have written an algorithm uh, doesn't mean that I'm doing away with human mistakes. We, we all not only make mistakes, but we also all make probabilistic judgments. We make uh, uncertain judgments. But I, I think that if you look at the three principal sources of problems in AI, you can be you can advance toward an ethical approach by looking first at the data that you're using to train the system. All of the systems we're talking about here in the law are supervised learning systems in which a large data set has been analyzed, people have made judgments about which bucket things fall into, and then the algorithms have been trained to replicate that process. If you look at the data, you will find you may find anyway, uh, real evidence of bias or incompleteness, you need to look very hard at the data. 
you need to look at the algorithms. I'm not suggesting that lawyers are going to be able to evaluate gradient descent decisions that engineers have made, but you need to at least pay attention to those algorithms. And I think it's fair to say you also need to pay attention to the engineers. Uh, who were the folks who were designing this? Uh, if you're building a system that is designed to uh, answer questions about, say, gender or gender discrimination, if all of the engineers on that team are men, then uh, I would ask <laughs> some serious questions about whether the algorithms are going to be evaluated fairly and sensibly, even unconsciously. So I think ethical AI is possible, but it requires real rigor. After all, uh, ethics in the law requires real rigor and hard work. It's extra true in the case of AI because we're talking about things that all but the very advanced mathematicians don't truly understand. Even the fanciest scientists at some of the AI companies would tell you, you know, I don't actually understand how this algorithm works. I built it. Uh, <laughs> it's running on its own now, and I can't backtrack to tell you how it made that decision. So it's hard, but it's valuable. and in many contexts in the law, the decisions made by those systems will be not an alternative to a human decision, much less a good human decision, a fair, fully, factually founded human decision, but will be an alternative to no decision. People who do not have the resources to hire lawyers, people who have no access to courts, will benefit from these systems. We, as those who build them and design them, need to be careful and rigorous and honest and transparent in what we do. Well, in Isaac Asimov's iRobot book, which is really just a, a progression of AI stories, our future in the AI world is a dystopian one. Michael, when you look at your crystal ball, what do you see in the world where AI is everywhere? I don't, I don't see a dystopian future for reasons that are attributable to AI. There are plenty of concerns about the long-term future, but it is not driven by AI. We have significant privacy issues, and I think those are really at the foundation of the concerns about AI, not so much the technology itself. The enormous quantities of data that is now available for these machines to chew on, we should be paying attention to that data where it comes from, how it's used, who owns it, what benefits there are from it, and who benefits from its exploitation. The technology itself, I don't think, is the, the issue. AI is increasingly everywhere. Uh, there's uh, an article recently about uh, from a lawyer somewhere saying, we really need to plan for an era in which the directors of corporations are robots rather than human beings. I don't think that's terribly realistic, but uh, AI is showing up everywhere. I bought a new refrigerator recently, and the um, manufacturers of the refrigerator said they were using AI. I have no idea how or why, uh, and I'm not sure that I want them to any more than I want, to tell, I want my refrigerator to tell me that it's empty. But uh, AI is going to be everywhere in the sense that Smart algorithms are being embedded in smaller and smaller devices, in more and more devices. But I think that's largely beneficial. It is mostly about productivity, and productivity is a good thing. Productivity is the only thing that advances uh, human well-being. Well, I, th I think, Michael, they, they slap that AI label on your refrigerator to get that sticker price higher. <laughs> <laughs> they probably did. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, Michael, thank you for being our guest today. I always enjoy our conversations, and happily we occasionally get to see you in person and have those conversations. But I know you said that AI and ethics was a, a great and interesting topic, and uh, I hope you enjoyed uh, boning up on some of the topics we suggested uh, within within the podcast. But you did a, just a great job with it, and thank you so much for taking the time. Happy to have done it. Well, that does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or an Apple podcast. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. And you can find out more about Sensei's digital forensics, technology, and cybersecurity services at SENSEIENT.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.